Kia ora and welcome to episode 96 of the Stag Raw. This episode I interview Josh Rogers from Australia. Uh, he's co-host on the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. He's a bit of a uh, classic man on the old Instagram. He's just started a YouTube page, um, The Hunting Munger. Uh, expect great things from that page. He's also the field editor for Wild DMAG. And yeah, if you're on his Instagram page, you see he looks really hard at the sort of uh, patterns and and tries really hard and goes really deep into understanding what it is about the sand deer and how they move, how they behave mm-hmm. um, to make for a successful hunt. He's just passionate about it, uh, the Victoria high country, and um, yeah, legend of a guy, great talk. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this one. Make sure you hit up either Josh or, or myself if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. Kia ora everybody, we're speaking with, you put us hunting down under, right? Hunting camp down under. Hunting, hunting camp down under, so that, that's um, Toby Hines, he's now one of your co-hosts, is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, and... So um, myself, myself, uh, Toby, to- you've had Toby on, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a good guy, funny guy. Um, <laughs> Craig Hales was the, he's... He's the founder of it. Yeah. Um, and then there's Alan Kidner and Robert Herbert. So Some there's talent. a few of us, a little bit of expansion. And I think it, it brings a bit more a different content. So Yeah. And a lot, a lot of talent going on there in different elements, eh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've all, we've all come from different walks of life. So that in itself mixes it up and then just the different content contacts we have that we can reach out to yeah it's only going to get bigger and better for us i think so see see what we can reduce in the next yeah six or 12 months absolutely and so as as aussies as a hunting community are you feeling threatened like we are over here like gun gun laws and you know most of you guys sling a bow but (laughs) yeah yeah so sorry i cut you off um we are we recording? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, sweet. Um, we we're constantly under threat in Australia, so we our governments don't take game management seriously enough. So because of that, it's a constant uphill battle for us. So you guys obviously, you guys had that that mass shooting, which was terrible, and and um and then you had obviously all the political stuff with the tar and the coals and things like that which it all hurts but i think as a whole you guys do hunting a lot better mm-hmm. management wise and and even how it's embraced by the general public i think it's we we are sort of a smaller minority over here and um education's probably paramount there mm-hmm. where uh, it's not it's not the antis that are a problem. It's probably the the non hunters that just don't understand. So they they got an impression in their mind as to what they think a hunter is. A lot of the time, it's Alma Fudd because that's a part of everyone's childhood, like coming up through the um, the Warner Brothers stuff there. So we're all just gun toting cowboys, really. Which it, it's just it couldn't be further from the truth. So we. We need to get better at it. Um, social media can be a massive asset, but it can also be 
the opposite too. So people feeling the need to have to post stuff or put up some pretty obnoxious content just because it's their way of trying to thumb their nose at aunties. But in actual fact, it's, yeah, it's not going to have the impact on them and mm. it's probably more damaging to us. So, yeah. Um, Victor, I'm in Victoria. So Victoria, we probably have the most access for hunting. So all of our public land is accessible to be hunted on, whereas a lot of the other states, it's not the case. So New South Wales has a little bit. Queensland has pretty much nothing on public land. It's, you've either got private property or, or you've got nothing. Um, but in my state, I've, we've got, geez, we've got, over a million hectares of land that's accessible for hunting. Most of it is, it has some form of game species in it. So um, Samba, Samba deer is probably the most prevalent, which is what, that's my target species. I've got them oh, 500 metres from my house, there's deer. Mm -hmm. So, and then I find myself travelling all over the state to hunt them, uh, primarily on public land too. So. I don't, I've never really pursued private property access and because of that, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty much just a public land hunter. Mm -hmm. hey, I, was, I was talking with a, a bloke, he's from um, Hunter Valley, but he's spent a lot of time down in Victoria. Is he right in saying that you can't get the fallow on the public land? Is there something around that? Oh, so that, that used to be the case. It's not anymore. So, oh, right, right. Yeah, that, that was lifted. So there was a period where we had a lot of fallow deer in different areas, but yet we just weren't allowed to hunt them. But they changed the game regs now so that we can, and we can hunt them all year round. Nice. And so what what's the sort of conversation with, with uh, state parliaments around around that? Like you say, it's, it's not so much the antis, but they're just the, not to use it, it derogatorily, but the people who are bliss, blissfully ignorant to the hunting um, part and, you know, might sort of say that, oh, that's cruel, but, but I don't really care. What... What do you think, sort of, as a as a populist, you know, sort of movement from the government? They they try appeal to the most people. What do you sort of find that, as as hunters, you're, you're under threat from? Yeah, so probably the biggest threat for us is the fact that our federal government and state government are, are closely affiliated with the Greens. So because of that, we we are directly impacted, and yeah. we're not. We don't have a big enough voice there. We've got we've got a couple um, political parties that represent us in the Hunters and Fishers Party, and yeah, there's a couple other smaller ones, but none of them have got seats in Parliament. And um, you just we just got to hope that the government recognise that game management's still important. We are we do have to pay annual fees to be to be able to hunt, so mm -hmm. um, we pay for a game license that allows us to be able to hunt on public land. So there is revenue being generated by that. Um, probably the biggest factor to support us is, is the revenue that we produce in rural communities that rely on tourism. They rely on the weekend warriors, so to speak. So the four drivers, the fishermen, the hunters. So we, we all contribute in different ways to, to those smaller communities and, and because of that, I, I had seen what the figures were, but I, I just can't off the top of my head recall what they were. But it's in the 
tens of millions of dollars that just my state alone is mm. is spending just to go hunting on a weekend just to to visit somewhere or accommodation or yeah so our greatest risk getting back to your main question is is the fact that the governments are very much in bed with the greens party and then they are then influencing a lot of the decisions around that so i think we we our hunting organizations do well as advisors and to push and to to look at improving game management um they obviously need the support in numbers so the more people that are join paid up members of their organization then the stronger that will be so um yeah without them we'd probably be in a whole lot worse situation so the reality is our samba population is is at an all-time high mm-hmm. um and it's only getting larger their their natural spread is now moving up the east coast of australia up past Canberra, which is maybe a third of the a third of the way up the eastern seaboard <coughs> there. They're also pushing out towards the outback country, which is something that a lot of us never really thought they would, but they are. So they're they're a very adaptable deer species. They they can be displaced really easy and they can travel a long way. So w- with that in mind, the government needs to get serious about how they control that population in itself. While they're protected under the the Game Act, they can't go down the path of poisons and things like that, which is which is great at the moment. But if if we don't start looking at it realistically, then that that's probably options that they will try to pursue at different times. And like you guys in New Zealand know better than anyone the impacts of ten eighty poison on on different areas. So mm. I know when I was over there, I went through some regions where there wasn't any sign of life birds and everything it was yeah it was it was horrible really so yeah and um and another podcast from you guys over there hunting reach just had josh james on there and, and he he's you know knows knows more than most being on the west coast that some areas you know it works well and and you get a quick quick uh recovery of birds and, it, and it's great and then other areas like you say it's just death and and something he was he was saying or something i listened to the other day that he'd love to know well, he'd love somebody to go in there and, and research why it is that it works in some places and other places it's just devastating. And, and um, you know, we had just had a report back from Molesworth Station that the guys up in Marlborough and Nelson decided to do a little bit of surveying off their own back, which was fantastic. But the results that they, you know, brought up that the biker was up to 80%, you know, and doc, docs are equating that, oh, it's around 50%, some deer might die. And, of course, doc's quite happy with that. but. Yeah, it was it was actually devastating to the population. So, you know, in a place like that, it's open country. It it, it can be it can be hard to pay. And, and the the fear, I guess, from people in conservation um, from our side is that you know we're we're stopping this because our, our, our native beach produces mass and plenty of food for the rats and the ferrets and the stoats and all that sort of stuff. And then they devastate the birds straight away because they've got a mass population. But if you if you clear everything out, they're the first ones to adapt and, and eat whatever they want because they're scavengers, and and then you end up with a boom again. So, you know, if if, if they're going in and, and and targeting a samba species with poison, it's it's what else comes with it. Which, you know, I'd imagine you guys are, are pretty hot on on 
but vermin and, and that sort of stuff as well. I mean, obviously, you guys protect the possum, whereas we don't. But yeah, yeah. Is, is that something that you see in the bush as well? You know, you've got plenty of cameras out there. How much rodents do you see go past? <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot. So um, we've got mul- multiple species of possums over here. Um, probably, if like like getting back to the point about targeting the samba, we, we've got a lot of ground-dwelling mammals here that they're more likely to be impacted before mm. the deer. So if they were to lace oats or something like that, yeah, they'll get some deer, but they're more likely to, to, to get a larger percentage of kangaroos and wallabies and wombats and, um, and then the rodent-type animals across the ground because deer species would prefer to have a varied diet. So they're going to go through, they'll have some of it. Yeah, absolutely. But they're just as quick just to be browsing other shrubs and grasses and whatnot. Whereas those native mammals, they're more likely to go straight into it and consume large amounts of it. So there's, there's been a couple it's sort of rumor and innuendo at the moment about some trial poisoning that was done and, I tend to believe it did happen, but it got swept under the carpet because of exactly what we just mentioned then around the fact that kangaroos and wallabies, more of them died than what the target deer species did. So the last thing the government needed to do was to release that as mm. that. So now it's still just, it does does the rounds. It gets brought up every now and then. People talk about it. We all are pretty confident it did happen, but nobody can prove it. So, um yeah, the cameras in the bush. I, I do get lots of different furry critters coming past. We don't have the stoats and ferrets and things like that, but we do have a lot of. Um, well, in my local region, we've got a big problem with wild dogs. So mm. there's a lot of them. I just refer to them as wild dogs. Some of them will be uh, genetically still alpine dingoes. It's a bit hard to find unless you did full genetic testing of every dead dog that was ever taken in, then you're never really going to know if they are true dingoes or, or just these hybrid things. So either way, they're pretty, pretty brutal on, on the native animals and the fact that they can work as a group and bring down mature Samba says that they're a pretty efficient killing team when they get going. So, um, yeah, which I, I happen to capture on trail camera, them pulling down a couple of different deer actually, but one in particular, yeah, a pack of five dogs working pretty effectively to just bring a 200 kilo sand behind down in the water too. So, yeah, um, kind of lost my train of thought there a bit about where we're heading, but yeah, no, yeah. That, that, as you said, it's a poison for, for what's native to Australia's. You know, yeah. can, can affect the natives more than more than anything else. On that, on those wild dogs, um, uh, again, Darcy was sort of saying that there's there's a sort of idea that maybe the purebred dingo, as a group, is not so interested in in um, in sheep and, and cattle and stuff like that, and also drive out the wild dogs. Is, is there anything, for your knowledge knowledge to that, that as as a dingo species, they they sort of mess up the wild dog population? Yeah. Uh, look up. I couldn't, I couldn't say, to be honest. I, we do still see a lot of dogs that would be potentially genuine dingoes, but there's not, there hasn't been a whole lot of study into it 
that that I'm aware of to to suggest that 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 is the case. Uh, they, if I see an orange dog, that you would think, hey, that looks like a dingo. Like that, they there are colour phases where they'll be black and tans and stuff like that too. So you look at them, and and the dogs I see quite often they are a mix of of ginger dogs and and of these colour phase dogs. So if it's one or the other, I'm not sure, but they seem to be more likely than not these hybrids. In my opinion, mm. it's not. That's don't take it as fact. I haven't studied in it. I don't. I, I, it's only my observations of being in in the bush and being around them, and and obviously the trail camera footage I see, and um, yeah. So. <laughs> I guess the dingoes in northern Queensland, you could probably look at them and say that probably is the case, that they are they are less likely to target domestic stock and and um, there's probably less of an influence of the, the wild dogs in there, whereas Victoria, it's a little bit different in... Yeah, I think, look, as far as I knew, I thought the only genuine dingoes we had left was there's an island out up off the the east coast fraser island that's got a pretty high population that has never been impacted by dogs so that's still a pure a pure line and then some of the northern ones so it'd be interesting to see if someone if someone wanted to reach out that has done some form of study on it that'd be great but yeah and, and do you, a bit more yeah do you guys sort of share the frustration that you know you like us you're hugely passionate about the animals that that you've got but then when it comes to try create an argument or you know pick apart somebody's reasoning for wanting to get rid of them there's just no research one way or the other so it's kind of like it ends up being sort of an emotional emotional discussion and you and you can't really fault them or fault yourself or or have some something to sway your reasoning and like i said with the wild dogs it's kind of like well that's what they look like, but nobody really knows. And the same for like deer density, deer numbers. Um, over here with the tar thing, you know, that margin of error on the tar was like thirty thousand um, tar, and it's kind of like, well, who who bloody knows what they're doing, what what they're affecting, how many there are? Is that pretty, you know, similar feeling for you guys? Yeah, it is, and that, and that varies. Like I, I have conversations with a lot of my friends that are hunters just around. Um, even hunter numbers across the country, like how many, what's the percentage of bow hunters in Australia versus rifle hunters and what what is the percentage of that? So if we can't ourselves agree on what they are, then obviously when you start talking animal populations, it's it's probably a much harder one. So we've all got different theories, we've all got different ideas. So depends on how passionate you are as to how invested you're going to be in your theory. So then that's, yeah, absolutely. So you start talking Samba, some person, some people might say, oh, yeah, and the numbers are over a million. But how do they know that? What are they basing it off? Um, it's almost regional. So I know some areas that are highly populated and then I know some others where I can walk around all day and I might not even see a deer. So I still hunt there because it's generally where some of the bigger ones will be. But, yeah the densities vary from one region to the next and the hunting pressure and then uh, the hound hunters, you start talking about those guys. Like if you want to talk about effective game management, then look at 
the harvest rates of our, our Victorian hound hunting group because some of those guys would be shooting 10 to 15 animals a weekend, mm. um, at times more. So once upon a time, an annual kill rate for a team, they used to try to target 100 deer. Um, if, they had a, if they got 100 deer in a season, they were wrapped, and that was a huge effort, and everyone wanted to get that ton. But then it become 150, then it's 200, and then now mm-hmm. I hear there's multiple crews around that are shooting upward of 300 or 300 plus deer in their season so and the season typically only goes for about 25 weeks or something like that so you do the math and it's large numbers of deer being harvested um and it's indiscriminate too so that they are shooting whatever the dogs are chasing whereas the stalkers and things like that they're they're typically just targeting stags or yeah, so a lot of the time these the population imbalances are because of that because someone's going in, they're passing up 15 hinds because yeah. they just want to shoot a stag. So, uh, you know, the ADA went through a period where that's the Australian Deer Association, they went through a period where they were trying to encourage more hunters to kill more hinds just to get the balances a little bit more um, balanced out. So... Yeah, it's like it is a difficult thing. Um, I know uh, our game management authority in Victoria they do they do do surveys of of harvest rates and things like that, but not every they don't engage everyone. Um, what what information they're getting? How how accurate is it? So yeah, I guess absolutely it's difficult to understand the numbers and things like that so uh, I, I do travel around a lot around the state so I do have a bit of an idea of different regions and um, areas and things like that but I'm still I'm not any guru on on total populations or anything like that I just I am passionate about it and I do travel around a lot I, I think it's it's almost like tr- chasing the dragon so to speak where i'm constantly trying to find that perfect gully that's holding yeah big deer or or different deer or i don't know i can't help myself i'm just i'm I'm everywhere like i've got them 500 meters from home but i'll i'll drive five hours one way just to go hunt them up on top of a mountain in the snow plane country because that's that's just it's in my dna i guess so Yeah. yeah Uh, that's right like i said to you um how's my weekend going so you know got got one in the chiller but it almost feels like cheating when you when you go to the back of the farm and compared to going up up you know up and down in the mountains and, and through the bush and stuff like that and spooking something's almost almost just as worthwhile as, as, as going to the back of a paddock and, and finding a mob and, and, and picking one out <laughs> yeah yeah oh, look you take that take the easy ones where you can because there's plenty of others that that or plenty of unsuccessful hunts where you haven't had it. So yeah. um, probably no better example of that than the trip I've just come back with with a mate in Nevada. So we we hunted hard for 18 days and he didn't notch his tag. So, um, yeah, that's, that's bow hunting, that's international hunting, but, yeah, 18 days of solid hunting to not, to not harvest anything. It was pretty tough, pretty tough on him, but... Yeah, you just you take that. That's why 
like you say, those ones out in the back of the paddock, you take those ones when they're there because they offset these other trips. So yeah, no. and yeah. so with, with with you took them out, Greg, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, so with, with him, is it just because, like, I, I watched that um, bow hunting down under video the other day, and is it just because his standard now is that high? <laughs> like, what, what a trip. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, nah, so you mean why he didn't why shoot didn't one? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, it was a challenging hunt. So they do say that high country mule deer is one of the difficult, most difficult hunts in the western part of the US so it, the environment's difficult the, like the elevation's high you're doing big miles number densities were quite low in the area that we were in um, I think the first few days we we got misled a little bit in some of the information that we tried to gather before we got there where it was all about elevation 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 mm-hmm. so we we picked out pretty much the highest mountain that we actually walked up the third highest mountain in in Nevada. <laughs> so we first day we just hiked straight up on top. Huge amount of elevation gain and and then we've got up there and we're looking around and we're thinking, geez, where where are all these deer that are supposed to be at the highest points? And um yeah, we, we sort of lost a couple of days because of that. We found a whole heap of big horn sheep and and then the couple of deer we did spot, we spotted off the top, but they were back down the bottom where we'd come from. So mm-hmm. in the end, we sort of broke it back down into let's not worry about the species itself and just treat deer or just deer. So let's treat them like the deer we've got at home and hunt them the same way we would do that. And that and with that in mind, we started thinking um, feed, water, and, and a bit of cover is all they're going to need. And they, they are velvet at that time because it's early season archery so thinking that i know my experience with samba that they're they're going to be looking at the best bang for their buck with feed they don't want to be moving too much because there's a lot of energy going into antler growth um and it was extremely hot too so they were they were going to have to be watering semi-regular so there was no water on top the only the only access to water we had was the snow up there, so we were melting snow on top, and we're thinking, well, that's a bit of a problem. Like we're in the Nevada desert, there's not much water around, so why are the deer going to be right up there? And yeah, we we made the decision to drop back off, and sure enough, we found, given the the numbers that were supposed to be in the area, we found a quite high population of animals living in this couple basins with some fresh water which was a lot of it was the snow melt and then yeah then the hunt really began so we were a few days of that was lost then then there was probably a little bit of a few days of trying to find a a big one or a good one because because we had so much time up our sleeve um and then as the trip progressed the standard certainly got lowered as it got closer towards the end to the point where, yeah, if he could get onto a representative one, then he was going to be more than happy with that. But the the t- conditions were really tough because it was so dry. It was really noisy underfoot. So getting into bow range was challenging in itself. Then the few real chances he had on some pretty good bucks, the wind killed us. So. 
we, we had a couple hunts where like I, I'd glassed up some animals and I was sitting off them so that I could guide him in off a different face so he could see me and I could point him in the direction that they were at. And um, one of them was set up perfectly where he had time. So it was early afternoon. He had several hours to get in. At the wind at that time was favourable. We had um, pretty strong thermals just rising up. So he was going to be coming in from above. So you, everything was, all the stars were finally aligning. This, The better buck was bedded down where I, I could keep a pretty close eye on him from a couple hundred yards. And and then just as he's starting to drop down, he's maybe a hundred yards off him. Just out of the blue, the wind just decided, decided it was going to swirl around and it, it dropped straight down the gully. And almost immediately the deer responded and took off and were out of there. Then the wind settled back into where it was previously and for the next two hours we didn't have another change of wind. So it only happened for about 30 seconds but and it, but it just happened right at that crunch point for him. So that was pretty devastating. Uh, then there was another buck on another morning where we'd seen him feeding across a ridge. So I, I sort of propped where I could keep an eye on this one as well and Craig's made a bit of a dash through a gully and up onto the other side and He's looked back at me just to see where his positioning was in, in relation to the deer. And I'd seen it cross out over a little knoll. So I've, I've indicated that to him. Um, at that point as well, it was already starting to move a little bit faster. So it went from milling around feeding, doing sort of figure eights to it was just beelining towards a bedding area, but it was still feeding, but feeding really quickly. So by the time Craig's got up there, told him it's gone over and he sort of poked his head up and over and, and the deer was already maybe 80 odd yards further down the ridge on the opposite side. And then he's, he sort of rushed a little bit to get in because of the pace the deer had. He had to sort of rush in behind it. Um, and he's knocked his arrow. He's, he's got to within 60 yards. And then right at, once again, right at that moment, he's just felt that wind come across the back of his neck again. And, and almost straight away the deer's responded and taken off. So he did have those couple opportunities where he was almost there, but, yeah, the wind, each time the wind got him. If we were rifle hunting, gee whiz, like there was no amount of these bigger bucks that we've seen that you wouldn't have not shot. So it's just that's the challenge of bow hunting. He's solely a bow hunter. He doesn't take rifles anywhere, whereas I'll hunt with whatever I eat whatever I can or, or want. So I bow hunt, I rifle hunt, I'd hunt off dogs with like with knives and that, the pig dog guys. So I'm happy to do a bit of everything, whereas Craig's not. And because of that, he, he accepts that his success rate's going to be lower anyway. And there's no guarantees in any form of hunting, but the guarantees are even less when you're talking bow hunting and archery gear. So, yeah, but I, I just went on that trip just to tag along with him he, he drew this tag we he knew it was a reasonable tag to have drawn and um i just said hey I'm, i might tag along with you just with the camera and be there to give you a hand if you if you do tag out hiking all the meat out because of the look obviously hunting america there's the conditions around removal of all the edible meat prior to any of the trophies so um yeah i, I just sort of thought you know what i'll, I'll go and just tag along and i'm glad i did because it was great um 
I think he was appreciative of having the extra person there because there was a lot of downtime in between. We basically hunted an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon and it's daylight savings times over there. So then we had about 10 or 11 hours of just sitting in camp, in the mountains, in the sun. So if you followed any of my stuff on Instagram, you would have seen that there was a fair bit of time just entertaining ourselves with some pretty comical skits and things like that. But, yeah, it was good fun. Um, I'm not sure how else we would have passed the time. So I, I took a couple of books in, and but I read I read them on the first day. So, <laughs> yeah, we were done. Yeah. yeah, we had, at one stage we had uh, a mountain lion sort of moving around the camp. It was, we never got eyes on it, but we had the sign of it every day. So at night it was moving around and coming in pretty close to camp and, unsettled the deer a fair bit too so we ended up moving locations for a few days just not because of the cat but just because of what it was doing to the deer so we went from seeing maybe 20 or 30 deer in a day to three or four and and they were coming out later and later so it was really impacting on our ability to hunt properly um but it was cool and i was pretty keen to try get eyes on it or get photos of it which it just didn't eventuate which is a pity Coyotes were everywhere. They were carrying on every night. You could hear them howling and squeaking and doing all the things they do. So, um, seen some big elk too, which was cool. So that was a sort of a bucket list item for me because I haven't hunted, I haven't hunted in North America where there's elk or anything like that. I hunted whitetail over there last year in Wisconsin, but um, yeah, I was really keen to see an elk. Ended up seeing some some really nice ones, which was cool. Um, yeah, seen some good bucks and did, did a lot of miles too. Oh, and the other, the other thing that I was desperate to see was, uh, rattlesnakes. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty keen on the snakes over here. I did get bit by a tiger snake, which Shit. yeah, last year, which probably lucky to, or this year it was actually this summer just gone. So I was probably lucky to have survived that, but it only just hit me and, Give me what the doctors were saying was a micro dose. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a couple of days in hospital, got released, and I'm all good. But I, I do like getting in with my camera with the snakes, and yeah, a rattlesnake was definitely high on the list. And everyone we spoke to said, "You'll see so many of them, you get sick of." And we seen one in 18 days. So, but it was pretty cool. It gave me give me a rattle a couple times, which yeah was pretty pumped with it. Got in, shoved the camera lens in his face, got a few <laughs> angry photos. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then we were off again. So, yeah, it was a good trip. Absolutely. And so... Highly, highly recommend it to anyone. Yeah, it's um, his young guy uh, from New Zealand who's, who's just picked up the boat to go do it and, and they, were, they were successful with the about. So I'm hoping to get him on soon and, and have a chat about one was it like picking up a boat for six months and getting after it into being in that environment. Like you say, what was, what was the sort of planning? Like, you know, like you said, Craig pulled a tag. How, how um, broad had he, had he set his, his chances? Yeah. So Craig's hunted North America a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> he's drawn some good tags and he shot some good elk. So the deer thing was just him dipping his toe in the water to see whether or not he'd enjoy 
mule deer hunting as much as he did elk hunting. Turns out he didn't enjoy it quite <laughs> to the same level as the elk because elk in archery seasons when they're bugling hard and screaming and carrying on. So it's probably in North America, I don't know whether it would get much better than like a 1,000-pound a animal just screaming its head off at 20 yards from you. It would certainly get the blood pumping. But um, Craig's very knowledgeable North American guy. He's, he's got a keen interest in it and chatting to some of the guys over there, a lot of the time he knows more about North America than what the North Americans know about their own country. So he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. He's got a tag system that he's developed now where he's helping Australians apply for areas, apply for the, yeah, putting in their applications to different different regions and different states. And so he, he had a very good understanding of what was going on. He actually drew the Nevada tag, but he also drew a Colorado tag. So the initial plans were I took my bow, so my bow come with me. I couldn't hunt in Nevada because I didn't have a tag, but if we got to Colorado, there was going to be a chance that I could just buy an over-the-counter elk tag and that I could have hunted an elk while he was on his Colorado mule deer hunt. So once again, I couldn't have hunted the mule deer because that was a draw tag. Um, but the plans were, we're going to go, we're going to go to Nevada. We're going to tag out there pretty early and then we're going to drive across to Colorado and have another crack at mule deer there and elk. But as all plans go, it didn't all play out how it did. So we spent the whole time in Nevada and, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't get it done in the end, but I, I wouldn't change any of it. Um, carried my bow to North America and back again, and I never pulled it out of the case. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he'd certainly done his research, and he knew he knew rough locations of where to start and things like that. So we'd done hours and hours of just scrolling through Google Earth, just trying to find basins and water sources and things like that so i'd marked up a whole heap of printed out screenshots of google earth that we'd done some of them didn't quite play out like we had what looked great on google earth to when we got there were just two different things that the country was pretty brutal um in in just the 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 aspects, so the steepness and the distance. It's a bit like New Zealand too. Like I, I struggle with the depth perception up there. You'd sort of you <laughs> look at it and you think, geez, that's only it's only just over there. And you start walking, it's like, holy crap, like this is much, much bigger than until you can put something in in your mind to, to be able to um gauge the distance or size it wasn't until i'd walk across one face and i'd look back and i'd see craig and he's just a little speck there and I, I i don't i know that when i when i hunted new zealand it was exactly the same thing so we were hunting tar and we were down on the riverbed and i'm looking up and i'm, I'm sort of looking thinking one of these tar is going to take up a fair amount of space in my binos and then one of the guys was like oh i've seen one I'm like where is it i can't see it and then Sure enough, there it is, but it, it was just like a grain of dust through your binos because it was so far up to where they were. It's quite incredible, really, and it probably sounds funny when I'm trying to explain it like that, but unless you've experienced it, 
you're probably not going to understand it, but it just, yeah, yeah, everywhere we went, we just thought, that's only a little war. And then, yeah, it's not. It's just it's the same with wild. the Same with the steepness, like you say, you sort of look at it on the topo and you think, oh, yeah, there's, there's some gaps between those lines and then you get to them and you go, oh, yeah, those lines are 20 metres and that's like <laughs> five metres across. Yeah, yeah. Do, do I really want to scale that? Oh, I came down to screw the other week and, you know, kept, kept checking the, the GPS going, am I, am I doing the right thing here? Am I going to get up in trouble? But no, it was it was sketchy, but it was fine. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, um, yeah. It was definitely like that over there. So yeah. Um, we've got, we already got plans in motion now for an elk hunt together next year over there. So we'll be looking at trying to draw draw a party tag or something like that so that we can be in the same same unit, yeah. which will be cool. So that'll be next the next year's rut. So I'm pretty pumped for that already. So Yeah. And so with, yeah. with the what what was what was Nevada the priority? Like, you know, you guys spend all your time there. How come how come that ended up? why you put in for Nevada, you mean? Or? No, no. so, you know, you guys had uh, Colorado tag as well and you sort of yeah. were doing all right in Nevada. What did you prioritise just to get out in Nevada? Was it just, yeah, was good it just question. T- so, time? Nah, so what it was was the fact that we'd put in so much groundwork already, we thought we were starting to pattern the deer a little bit. Nice. And, and we knew that if we went to Colorado, we were going to be back at square one. So we are going to have to start covering as much ground as we can, trying to find, lo- just locate deer again. So we figured, why leave Nevada when we're on deer, go into a state that we don't know, we're going to lose time travelling because it was going to be at least a day that we had to drive through to Nevada, then I think you had Utah, then it's Colorado. So we had a fair distance to get from one side to the other. And, yeah, we just thought our best odds were to stay where we were, where we'd seen pretty good animals um we'd spoken to nevada taxidermy too so they were they were ready that if if craig did shoot one they were going to be able to um take care of the head and cape and things like that for him pretty early they they were prepared for us to turn up at any time which was good of them but in that condition so we're talking nevada desert it was sort of 40 plus degrees celsius every day so by the time we were going to have harvested one, hiked the meat out, then got the head and cake, like you, the time you're racing against the elements really to protect what is a velvet stag as well. So we're not yeah. talking hard antlers animals; they are velvet, so you need the velvet treated and and then even his cape too. So we've done a fair bit of planning in the background to make sure that we had that part of it covered, yeah. but obviously the hunt just didn't play out in the end. So yeah, but Nevada taxidermy, we spent a bit of time there on our way through and on the way in and then on the way back, we called back again and sat down and chatted to them and they, they do some incredible work there. I was just awestruck by some of some of the elk and the bears and lions and all sorts of things in there. But yeah, they were brilliant and they're more than welcoming too. So um, hopefully we'll catch up with them again if we're over stateside again. So that was good. Yeah, we, yeah we basically, that's why that's why we prioritise Nevada. It was just, yeah. just trying to get it done. Nice. So when you say um, next year you're hoping for the same unit with with those tags in Nevada, was it just the whole state's parks, or or you sort of 
got got narrowed down to an area, and that's when that's where you start looking at. Yeah, so he, so Craig, each state manages their tag system differently. Mm. But when Craig put in for Nevada, there's there's multiple units across the state, so it's a bit like um, Fiordland for you guys, where you've yeah. got different areas or different units broken up in there, and you can apply your first, second, and third preferences. So Craig had done the same thing here where he had five preferences and I think the unit he drew, which was um, 161, 162, 163, so they were just three different ranges running east to west. Um, He had that as his third preference, I think. So for us next year, we're probably going to be targeting Wyoming or or Montana. and and putting into one of those states or even New Mexico. We're talking New Mexico. He's hunted New Mexico a couple of times. So we'll likely put in for that too. So we, we'll probably have applications in for a few different states and we'll just see what our what our draw rates are like. So you might get in, you might not. Um, and we'll just have to play it by ear. And then as our backup plan, we we've got a buddy in Oregon and you can get an over-the-counter tag in Oregon. So regardless of what we draw, we can just go there and buy one. And then um, he's a local guy over there, so we'll be able to utilise him to to get us into an area, getting us out, potentially pack horses and things like that too. So nice. um, that's that's the contingency plan. But obviously we're going to try to prioritise some different units in different states and just see where we get, see yeah. how it all plays out. Nice. And so going back to your sort of era, do you, do you have a real season for Samba or are they just too, too variable and cycling at different times? Um, so in relation to a rut or? Yeah, rut and, and yeah. velvet and versus hardy. And like, yeah, like, so there's certainly, there's certainly peaks. So there's peak periods. If you read a lot of the books through the 80s, there was definitive times where they rutted. So basically spring was the only time Samba would rut. Um, with a lot of the different natural impacts, like fires, um, drought, drought conditions, and, and then even sort of rain events, um, they evolved to slow, the Samba slowly evolved to just breed outside of those normal periods. So we will still get a peak rut activity, which is sort of now, so beginning of spring. I've already started seeing quite a few stags starting to get a bit ruddy and big necks, but they're certainly not as set as a red deer or a fallow deer in that they will rut at the same time, give or take a week or two, depending on the weather. Um, so you could find a hard-antlered samba stag all year round in Victoria. Summertime, it probably there's going to be it's going to be more difficult. There's going to be more stags in velvet over over in our Victorian summer. Mm-hmm. But if you put the time in, you can find them. And you are still allowed to hunt all year round. So there's some parks that you're not allowed to hunt right round, year round. So, uh, yeah, there's probably a few too many to name what parks they are. Probably the big one would be the, the Alpine National Park, which is our largest parcel of land. And... There's a no hunting exclusion there between December and February, um, and that's What's, just because of the influx of bushwalkers and things like that. So, 
bit of nervousness around that. I don't quite get it. They probably should just allow us in there because there's less hunters around that time of year anyway. Most guys put their guns away and pick the fishing rods up for summer because of because of snakes, because of the heat, because of the yeah, because of the increased bush users too. So that that's probably one of the main hindrances on you. But there's still plenty of other state forests that you can get into year round and and hunt as much as you want really so the only season we do have on samba is the hound season so they restrict those guys from uh, april to end of november annually most guys pull the pin a bit earlier than the end of the season just because by then the weather's starting to warm up just gets a bit harder on the dogs there's more snakes around Mm. So the dogs don't get bitten by snakes often, but it does happen. Um, it's more likely you'll have heat exhaustion or something like that on the dogs as it starts heating up because they don't want to stop hunting. They'll just keep chasing until the deer veil up. And, yeah, we've had, we've had a lot of dogs in the past where, yeah, they get knocked around a little bit with the heat. So generally guys will start winding up end of september early october depending on whether they get any wet days they'll they'll be straight back out again so um apart from that yeah there's very little restrictions on the samba hunting here so Mm. hog deer we've got hog deer as well probably or it is the largest population of huntable hog deer in the world there's a season on them the public land access is is quite difficult um the, the areas that you are allowed to get in and hunt on public land, it's a lot of it's really thick. It's limited, limited sized areas, so you're quite often hunting on top of other hunters, which can be frustrating and dangerous at the same time. Uh, so, private property is probably the key to hog deer hunting in in Victoria. Or there's a couple ballot systems. It realistically, if you wanted to to hunt public land hog deer then your best bet would be putting in for the ballot a lot of guys draw first year um nine this is my ninth consecutive year the the draw is in december but like i've I've put in nine years consecutively and a few other years earlier than that but i've never drawn in it my brother's up to 24 years consecutive years of that without drawing and then i've spoken to guys that have drawn three times in five years so yeah as with any ballot, there's a lot of luck involved, but yeah, more often than not, first year entrants uh, are drawing it. So, but that it does give you access to some different country where there's probably higher populations. So, if you did draw it, you're a pretty good chance of shooting, um, yeah, a, a reasonable hog deer stag. So. If anyone's interested in that, I'd be suggesting putting into that. It's like fifteen dollars for an entry into it. Um, there might, be, yeah, I can't remember the exact figures. There might be fifty uh, odd um, ballot periods that you, you. So you've got the chance of drawing in one of those over multiple weeks, and. Um, there's generally about three thousand people putting in, so <laughs> yeah, pretty should be pretty good odds, you'd think. But yeah, not for me, and definitely not for my brother anyway. So <laughs> yeah, um, and, um, and with it, with that national park, uh, high country national park, is it that people yep. 
the, the trappers and stuff do go off off country or you know is the, ne- is the network of tracks just that good that it's sort of going to close you guys out or like you say it's getting towards the peak of summer anyway and so hunting is a bit exhausting yeah no look it frustrates me that so the, the main reason being the government started doing these sanctioned culls in the same areas they they're culling out regions where and outside of the huntable timelines if, if they were serious about it they would just open it up for longer and allow the recreational hunters access to it that, but it's just it's uneducated people making decisions on it so they think that by allowing hunters in there that the extra bush users are at risk but it's just not the case so licensed hunters are responsible hunters there are the the odd rogue minority in any group but the bush users aren't at increased risk by allowing hunters to still be in there december and january like the reality is like I say, there's, there's going to be less guys up there anyway. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'd prefer they just allowed us full access to it, um, but they don't. So the, the bushwalkers and that, they don't. There are a good network of tracks, and they don't tend to get off them. Like they, they stick to them. Like I say, it makes no sense to me why we're not allowed to up there, but we're not. So, so the government, on one hand, says we've got a deer problem. How are we going to manage it? And then on the other, they're saying, oh, but we don't trust you guys to be in the bush at this time of year. So we'll deal with that our own way by sending our paid shooters in to do it or aerial culls to do it. So, yes, but I suppose that's, you know, typical, I guess, of government. They um, appeal to the lowest common denominator. And, and when it comes to human safety, they've got a, if they factor in that lowest common denominator. And unfortunately for the, for the rest of us, you know, we, yeah, we're we're finding that right now with, with firearms laws that it's um, the, the ones that are us that are law abiding and have signed up and you know try try you know our utmost to to stick within the rules that all of a sudden having new rules placed on us which which you know you guys can sympathise with especially if you're around when, when that, those rules took took effect in Australia. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I was still <coughs> I was still pretty young then, so it didn't impact me because I. I wasn't a full license holder at the time, but I've certainly seen the old, my old man and some of the old school hunters, uh, particularly the hound guys that we're used to using semi-autos and things like that. But yeah, we, we just evolved now. It hurt at the time and it hasn't changed anything. So the the driver behind all of that, recreational hunters copped it in the net, but the reality was it was as a consequence to someone using military grade weapons, which the general public couldn't get anyway. So they're saying that all guns are bad or all people that, I don't know, but yeah, while it's fresh, I guess we'll see where it all plays out. But I do sympathize with you guys a bit. So, yeah. And and on on the flip side of that, you know, you guys have that game animals act and and we just have pests. Um, do you, from from our perspective, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do, and and it's the same with sort of you know international hunters. It's like, well, who are we to say that everybody should come get a guide if they come to New Zealand? When pretty much most of us as hunters in New Zealand wouldn't, wouldn't dream of, of going with a guide, even though it's going to add to your success. But 
you know, what what do you sort of think of having in place some value? Or, you know, as you say, they still get gold and stuff like that in Australia, but some value on, on the animals that are introduced. Yeah, so I I think the North American model is the best model. Obviously, theirs aren't introduced animals, so they they understand the value in them a lot more than what potentially or definitely more than Australians but I thought New Zealand had it pretty well in place and understood the value of of their game animals so certainly the the game status for the deer here helps and Australia's got a, a history of seeing pest animals and then almost completely wiping them out which you, you could see that with the water buffalo and up north through the 80s they they culled them to, to down to the, the final sort of thousands of head, which was crazy given given that they were already there. So I think if we if we do go to that space of changing the status to pest, then yeah, I'm not sure what the end result's gonna be for recreational hunting and and the likes in Australia. So as for New Zealand, I'm, I, I don't quite understand what the game management processes are there, or what docs influences are, or yeah, zero. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's our that's our problem, really. Is it's 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 zero management, and the goal is you know, especially if you listen to our current Ministry of Environment and Conservation and and where she comes from in the forest forest and bird. That's that is the goal is to have a, a you know, reasonably large islands of birds and, and trees, which, um, yeah, would be great. And, and we've got a couple of offshore islands that have been able to introduce that management strategy and, and no rats, no no pheasants, uh, not pheasants, forgive me, um, uh, weasels and, and stoats and all that sort of stuff. It, you know, it works quite well and they continually trap to, to stop infestations coming in. You know, rat, rats and stuff can swim, but, you know, then they've got things like the the kakapo and um, and even kias to to some extent and kiwis and stuff on these on these islands and, and it's fantastic. But when they then think right, let's up the scale to to New Zealand to the high country of, of the South Island to even even the bush that that I, I look out over and, and the rimatakas and and the rohinis and the kawakas, you know, the scale of it just doesn't quite happen because. You need to blanket it and get rid of everything, or you need to be intensive, 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 so that nothing can get in. And it's just that creep, and, and it's sort of wherever the money's at, that's where the where the um, killing goes. And then the money needs to go somewhere else. And then so that that period gets a little bit of time off and reestablishes with what it's got, and, and different things migrate in. And it's it appears, and this is just my short lifetime. It appears that it's a never-ending cycle of 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 management and so I'm not sure where we're at with with manage, managing things as a resource when all it seems is you know eradication is the only option yeah well, certainly that <laughs> that's a tactic that is applied over here more often than not so um, much the same with the Highland cattlemen in Victoria or Australia we they've been there <clears throat> been droving cattle through our high country almost since um, 
the first settlers. So then now with it, now we've got these Greens leaning governments that say, hold on, we we don't want the cattle up in the high country anymore because it's it's a great risk to this plant that's there. But you think, well, the cattle have been there for 200 years but and you can still see this plant there. How is it the long-term risk of that plant? Surely if it was going to be gone, it would have already been gone by now. But So we, we go down a path where we kick all of the Highland cattlemen out that like it's generations and generations of families that have done this now they're no longer allowed her up there because some orchid that someone found that they think the cattle will um completely wipe out but didn't make sense then it doesn't make sense now but it, it's almost like that extreme management practice is what has to be done and but it, it doesn't have to be done so I don't know. It's all about who who advises these people, and then who's making the decisions. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I do, I do, I do worry based on Australia's history of how they manage things. That if, if our game status changes on our deer, then yeah, we're in big trouble. So, they talk like sterilisation or chemical castration and things like that of of, of animals, which I don't know doesn't seem ethical a lot of the decisions that they make so yeah. like even the dogs as bad as our wild dog problems are I, I just don't like the 1080 style management practices and pretty horrible way for an animal to die regardless of where you sit on it I guess but having said that it's probably unfair for the, the cattle and the sheep that are friggin getting torn apart alive by these dogs so two sides of the argument but yeah. Poison probably not the right option. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's the, the what we were saying earlier on is that without any information on this stuff, it's like I say, who's advising who? What are their beliefs? And it's one belief versus the other. So you can't really say anybody's wrong. But at the same yeah. time, that there's there's no re, no room for nuance of it, and there's no room for discussion. It's just this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it. And you're wrong because you don't believe the same thing. And it's like, well, hang on, if if you show me some information or some you know something that backs up what you're saying, I, I might listen to you. But right now, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with your belief. I'm just interested because I I have an opposite vested interest to you and I'd, li- I'd like to hear you out and I'd like to come up with some sort of, you know, discussion on this. And that was, that was the same with, with the Taka, which was great in the end, is that, you know, it was sort of thrown on, on the country and thrown on the hunters and with somehow um, with, with the organisation of NZDA and, and then the Taliais on group, they managed to actually get people in a room to have a discussion and be heard. And that's, and that's what we're sort of worried about with, with our Game Animal Council is are they being heard or is it, you know, they're supposed to liaise with the Ministry of Conservation, but are they actually being heard and do we have enough funding for them to be, be realistic and have sort of precedence and um, in case studies and information to, to uh, sort of go back and have, have an argument and, and as we know, that all takes funding, and that's where we're sort of looking at, well, these international people coming in, to, and us ourselves as hunters, do we need to start creating some type of funding, creating, you know, organising people who are into ecology to start researching this stuff on our behalf instead of on the behalf of, of, of the birds? And, you know, that's, that's yeah. what we're, we're sort of sitting at. Is there much of that going on in, in, 
you know, rural places, you know, there's lots of rural universities. Any, any guys with that sort of interest or it's just all on farming? No, no, not really. So we, we've done, <clears throat> I walk, work for one of the water authorities in, in Victoria. So, or, yeah, we, we are the largest of the water authorities, but we do a lot of our own research internally. Um, looking at impacts of deer on it's from a water quality perspective mind you so it's probably not going to have the same findings as what it would if if hunters or or game management authorities put on full-time biologists to study numbers in regions and things like that so but we did look at deer densities and deer numbers and pathogens that they potentially carried that could be transferred to humans and and then look at the risk profile to our water treatment um, assets and are they capable of dealing with a lot of that so we do little bits and pieces but not enough so once again the american model they've got biologists assigned to different areas different regions and and it's up to them to look at uh summer winter ranges and deer numbers and um i I believe there's areas where they actually determine how many tags are released in different areas too so if the numbers are high in one area but low in the other then manage the population by restricting the amount of hunters in one spot but increasing them in another so I, i i tend to agree though i think from from an australian perspective i think that our hunting organisations probably need to get more proactive. So they, they do generate a lot of revenue that, and I, I do understand that they they do a lot of public educational type work, but maybe we need to be looking at having biologists dedicated to different areas and, and getting some fact rather than um, emotional opinions mm. to to deal with some of these problems. And so what's the sort of narrative from the ADA? Is it, you know, get involved or is it, you know, looking at that sort of stuff or is that just not, it's not something that's oh. entering the zeitgeist yet? Up to you guys on, on, on podcasts. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's it really. So I think, to be fair to them, that they're just constantly dealing with little spot fires here and there across every state in, um, uh, I guess, Every every state election, something else pops up, so they're trying to get on the front foot with dealing with those. But holistically, it should be dealt with as as a national organisation. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't really explain exactly what their priorities are. I do know that each of the hunting authorities all have a tendency just to push their own agendas, so they don't work united together. They that the hound organisations are just looking at the dogs that they're allowed to hunt and the stalking organisations are only looking at the stalkers' rights and you probably need to look at being more united. So, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting one. And so what what is your guys' sort of focus with, with hunting Kent down under? Is it just sort of to make the conversation familiar again? Like this urbanisation of... of of populations, you know, across all countries sort of means that people are separated from farmers, separated from their food and separated from hunting. Is that, is that your main goal? Yeah, look, so 
when Craig first started it, he just wanted to to have an opportunity to promote hunting as positively as he could. So it was all about just getting everybody's got a story. Mm. Let's hear it. Let's just capture that story, whether it's whether it's an educated conversation, whether it's a um, just a, a humorous campfire type talk, or or whether you are like we're we're hoping to start engaging a lot more of these um, government departments and things like that, and just trying to spread the message as well as we can that here we are, this is what we do, um, and it's just another opportunity to try influence some of those that non-hunting community that I was talking about earlier they're the ones that are going to decide in the end whether or not hunting is still in existence in 10 20 50 years that whether or not we know it now or not that they will be the ones that will be casting the final votes on it and the more of them that we can influence it by just explaining what we do how we do it that um field to plate type set up like clean eating if you can get that message across to those people then i think we're in a lot better position to to deal with a lot of these other arguments that we've been what that that, that political type agenda that we just kept talking about so um it, it yeah that that is what my goal is through social media is um I, i'll i i'm certainly like to have a joke and play around but then on the flip side i can have a serious conversation and i can i can debate as as positively as i can but all i want to do is try to promote hunting as positively as i can and and if i have a small part in that great and if not yeah so i guess that's where that's where we're at with the podcast there's nothing else we don't want to don't want to be a Joe Rogan pot juggernaut where we're just pumping out podcasts for the hell of podcasts. It's just about keeping it interesting, keeping people interested. It's the new. Like I, I don't listen to music as much anymore. I just pretty much anywhere I go, I put on a podcast and drive around killing time listening to podcasts. So, you know I mean? yeah. And, and I think, you know, you, you touched on, you know, field to plate is, is fantastic. I mean, you know, you you and Craig went halfway around the world as mates, and as you said, you had eleven hours to kill and connect and and yarn, and you know something that um, needs needs more and more of it as, as blokes talking. You know, when you've got eleven hours to kill, you, you start having conversations. So, and and then like I say, there's community with that. There's there's following a passion. You know, it's there's so much more to, to hunting than, than just you know feeding feeding a family and feeding a community. Eh? Yeah, that's right. So, and I guess that's you're spot on. There's another point there in that we've <coughs> we've had a couple of podcasts just recently just talking about mental health, yeah. men's mental health in particular. So, Rob Herbert, he he has suffered PTSD for a long time. So, him being open open about it, talking about it, it it's really helpful to to people around him and to different hunters. And the more of that we've done, the more we've had people reaching out saying, "Geez, look." appreciate you having that conversation and and this is my this is my feelings or this is where i'm at and um going down that path as well it's 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 quite empowering so yeah and of course you had, yeah. you had ken mulligan on you know talking about you know the thing that knocks a lot of guys off and, and, that, and that's heart concerns you know the, again yeah. another another epic conversation and, and and you had some health health scares as well is that right 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually had was diagnosed with two brain aneurysms last year. So picked them up before they burst. It's obviously, the survival rate after a burst aneurysm is not real great. So we found them before they got to that point. So I went in and had brain surgery last year. Jesus, yeah. Um, they they just put in basically it's a flow diverting stent where they they're trying to restrict the blood through the the aneurysm itself and allow the body to start healing back over it so um i actually go in this week for an angiogram for an internal look at it to see how it is 12 months on and with a bit of luck i can get off some of the meds i've been on for it so yeah that was a challenging period but i'm still here so mm. still still annoying people and <laughs> <laughs> It's, and so with the surgery, was there any sort of injury to, to the brain or it was all sort of in, internally done with catheters and stuff? Yeah, so they basically went in through my groin, up my femoral artery, and they just did it all internally. So there was no no invasive surgery, which initially that was going to be. They were going to do the full surgery where they were going to have to open up my head, take a piece of skull out. Yeah. Then they were going to, where it was, the location of where it was, there was a bit of bone there that they were going to have to drill the bone out. But there was a high risk of, on one side of the bone was my optic nerve to my right eye and then on, on the other was the main artery to the eye. So there was a risk that while they were removing some of the bone that they were going to hit either of those with a high chance of blindness because as a consequence and then they were going to have to clip it. But they decided against that method of surgery because I'm still a high risk of more. Yeah. And if they need to be able to do that surgery, once they've done it once, it's difficult to go back and do the same surgery on the same side again. Yeah. Um, so then the decision was made to do the intravenous surgery. And at, at that point, the surgeon was still unsure whether he could do it, but they felt that the opportunity to do that and have it successful was greater than just going down the other invasive type because the risk associated with the other surgery were are pretty significant so i went through while while we were going down that path i went through some pretty dark times mentally where it was just a lot of it was probably woe is me like why why is it happening but um yeah i've moved on pretty now i'm in a pretty good space 12 months on obviously we didn't have to go down that sort of invasive type surgery process but yeah um yeah i feel good so no no long-term side effects or anything like that as a consequence which is lucky probably already had some issues prior to that i don't know yeah we'll see i try to take the piss out of myself as much as i can at different times so <laughs> not, don't take life too seriously um, so, something Kent said, obviously this was an emergency and he sort of felt that he didn't have time to consider. What, what was the sort of, I guess it is grief, but what was the, the shock process like for you? Did you have time to sort of do a bit of research, collect your thoughts and have some good discussions? Or again, it was, you know, a surgeon telling you this is, it's either this or this or, or nothing else. Yeah, not really. So <laughs> I had to, I had, two different surgeons initially looking at him and one one didn't have really good people skills so he was just all <laughs> doom and gloom and every time I spoke to him I just thought my god I'm I'm gonna die or or I'm I'm gonna be permanently disabled by this and 
nothing really positive come out of it. But then the other surgeon was a brilliant people person. And every time I seen him, I'm like, geez, everything's going to be fine. There's nothing to worry about. What What's going on? And, and then it got to a point where the first surgeon almost seemed like he just wanted to have an opportunity to cut my skull open and start poking <laughs> around in my brain. And um, because he was the first one I was referred to, I, I couldn't just say, I don't want to see you anymore. I want to see this other one because the other one was, it was a referral from the first surgeon onto the other. So yeah. um, got to a point where I was talking to the, the good surgeon. I'm like, how do I just get you to deal with me now? Because that other guy's scaring the crap out of me. Um, and as it turned out, we ended up going down that path anyway. But yeah, I, I didn't have much time to plan for it or think about it or research it. It was just, here it is. We need to deal with this ASAP because there's no timeline on how long it would have been mm. um, safe for. So as soon as they found it, they really wanted to act almost straight away. But yeah, it's pretty crazy statistics about survival rates if they do burst. So only half of those that actually make it to hospital survive of the ones that make it to hospital. Another half of them will be permanently brain damaged. And then of those, it's only a very small percentage of people that actually come through it and live healthy, normal lives again. So it's certainly not something that you want to have, know about, and then allow, I guess, smokers are high risk of them or um, high blood pressure, things like that. If, If you were to live a lifestyle that increased any of that sort of influence, then there's a real chance that you have them and they burst. So... Um, I'm not in that boat. I did smoke when I was younger. I smoked. I don't smoke anymore. And I'm sort of as healthy as I'm going to be. But yeah, Um, got in, got the surgery done. And um, I was still recovering when I went on my Wisconsin hunt last year, which was cool. So (laughs) a lot of of my recovery time was, or the surgery date was determined by the recovery time so that I could get on this hunt that I'd had booked in and paid for. And yeah, which was another positive. It was a good part of the recovery was I knew that once I was capable of walking that I was heading over to Wisconsin and hunting whitetail, which was cool. So, yeah, And how did, you, how did you find out about this? So just out of the blue, started getting some headaches. I don't, I don't <coughs> excuse me, I don't typically get headaches. Um, so then when I, when I got these headaches, it, was sort of prolonged it never really went away it just went from like a you're talking out of a scale of zero to ten pain it was it was always there at like a a three or four but then it would spike up to a ten where i'd just be like a migraine where you're just putting pressure on your temples trying to alleviate some of the pain or to do that and it lasts for a few minutes um and then it and then it dropped back down to just a mild pain again, but it, it just never went away. So after a week or so of it, I'm like, I better go to the hospital and get it checked out. So I went down to the hospital and they started looking at it, and and then they they've done some scans just to check, and they ended up identifying the aneurysms, but the aneurysms were completely unrelated to the headache. So the headaches, they diagnosed that as what they call a thunderclap headache. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a sudden onset headache that just comes out of nowhere and then it just goes away just as quick. And I don't know why it happens, um, but it just happened. But fortunately, it picked up these other things that, yeah, 
he could get proactive and deal with. So the, the headaches ended up lasting a couple of weeks and yeah, just got on some pretty serious painkillers and it went away and then, yeah, I had to deal with all this other, other drama. So all the, all the heavy stuff. Yeah, mate. No, and, and like I say, there's the sort of, not not taking things for granted is is something that us as blokes need to think about more often, and not just sort of ignore it. And it, because yeah, it could be something more. Eh? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. So, um, so my I've got three boys, so they're they're all sort of teenage to adult age now. So they're all at significant risk of these same things. So they're hereditary. So once they reach 25 the surgeons encourage them to to go in and get scans and get checked out and um that's pretty hard in itself knowing that you pass something on genetically to your kids so that that they're they're at potential risk of it but once again knowing knowing that there is a risk then at least they can be proactive and um yeah identified early is the key so yeah, and and, mm. and there's there's definitely something to do to knowing your fam, family history. Like the amount of people that I see at work, they have no idea about what's gone on before them. You know, I'm always, always conscious of of what what my grandparents go through and, and and think about you know how that might influence decisions. And like you say, as a as a young lad, being bulletproof, you're a smoker, and now you're not. And you know, for your boys, it might mean that 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 path never crosses crosses them as well because of that, that knowledge. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, mate. Where do where do people track you down? I love your Instagram, especially when you've got the game game <laughs> game, game footage out, or, or or like you say, taking the Mickey out of yourself or, or the other the other guys. Um, where, where do people find you and, and, and find the podcast? Yeah, so there's Insta. I'm on Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I was on Facebook years ago, and then I just got sick to death of it. It's it just. Um, you can't control the content that you see on Facebook, but you can on Instagram. That's the best thing about it. So I'm on Instagram. My private account is rogers.josh. Yeah. Um, couldn't get my name the right way around. Someone else already had it. So Bastard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So on that, there's, there's some of the more serious info, like a lot of deer footage, photos. I try to share as much of that as I can. We also have the podcast, so there's a podcast Instagram account as well, and it's on Facebook, but I don't manage any of the Facebook side of it. Same reason, just don't need to deal with other people's drama on that. So, But the podcast handle is Hunting Camp Down Under. So there you'll see um, any of the new podcasts will be getting released on that. The podcast can be found on any of the podcast platforms, so Podbean, um, iTunes, or Stitcher, and we've just set up a YouTube channel for that as well, so they'll start sharing a little bit of the content around on that. Uh, there's also a webpage for the podcast, so, yeah, same same handle, so www.huntingcamptownunder. It's a little bit of info on there. Yeah, uh, yeah so we're sharing the, the, the host commitments get shared around a little bit. Um, yeah, it's all good. So if you check out my Instagram account, you'll see some of the funny stuff. You'll see some of the serious stuff. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, it's fine. Yeah. If you want to, any queries or questions anyone's got, I'm more than happy to I don't not respond to any messages. Any messages come through, I'm 
I'm always onto it and try to be as helpful as I can. So plenty of hunting opportunities in Victoria as well for anybody that wants to come over, do it yourself, hunting. It's it's pretty easy. So fly into an airport, hire a car, hit the hills basically. So yeah. yeah. yeah but so what, what would you leave people with and something to consider or even something that hasn't done you wrong, a thought that you live your life by or something like that? Um, so I guess I, I sort of live by the fact that I just don't take myself too seriously. So have a laugh. Laughing the great cure of just about everything. So I've got a pretty high-pressure job. So that, so that my serious part of me is taken up in that. So the rest of it's just me trying to entertain myself, entertain other people. So have a laugh. Legion, mate. I'm going to hit stop there. Thank, thank you so much for coming on board and. Yeah, it's great to connect. And, and like I've said to a number of people, I need to get over to Victoria very soon. I've, I've made uh, plenty of awesome connections with you guys over there. You, you're a great lot of people. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime you want, stay in touch. And if you happen to be coming over, I'll, I'll get you out for a hunt for sure. So plenty of opportunity over here. Legion. Cheers, mate. Isn't that a uh, true blue way to finish it? Don't take yourself too seriously. What a champion. And that takes me back to episode 30 that we did with Karen Zinn. That was something that she finished up with. Having a laugh. Absolutely the best medicine. And yeah, we can all take ourselves too seriously a lot of the time. You know, I'm guilty as charged with being too serious. That's why I love talking to people like Josh and, and checking him out on his Instagram. He gives me a chuckle often. And um, yeah, what a... What a cool way to end just, yeah, don't take yourself too seriously and have a laugh. <laughs> Laughing, it's awesome, feel good. Anyway, as you know, the podcast is brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-0.proveitnow.com. If you're an Aussie, you can order exogenous ketones through that website. Also, if you're in Canada, US or East Asia, that uh, website will get you able to do an order, get it delivered to your door, Whatever you want, keto protein, keto salts, keto on the go, keto teas, keto broth, keto creamer, um, uh, the sleep aid, nighttime OS or something like that, signal OS. It's all there. Uh, the 60 hour fast, keto reboot, that's there as well. Um, if you're just really keen on tapping into ketosis, getting yourself a helping hand with getting into ketosis, ketosis induction, that's something that uh, Cliff Harvey's big on, that's what his PhD is about, and the challenges of, of that keto induction phase, having exogenous ketones can be very helpful for getting you over that hump, and as I said, assisting you with a fasting protocol like the Keto Reboot, once a month they do that, 60-hour um, fast with the help of ketones, broth, teas, the keto protein as you exit the fast and signal OS to uh, really maximize that autophagy, the DNA repair and sleep. So yeah, it's really awesome product. If you're not in one of those open markets, just hit me up at the Stag Raw on Instagram or the Waikito Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O. You can find all of the episodes there as well. So it's a great little spot. And also share the odd thing through that page as well. So yeah, check it out if you're not in one of those open markets. Hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. Even if it's not about ketones, I'd love to have a chat with anyone out there, anyone who's enjoying the podcast. Um, it's going really well. I'm loving bringing it to you two a week. It's 
bit challenging, but no, it's lots of fun. It means that we get to share more and more awesome people with you. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your feedback. Thanks for giving us a rating on iTunes. Um, it means heaps. It means that we uh, get bumped up the charts, get a bit more exposure, get more, more ears listen to this podcast. Have a great week, um, and we'll be back soon with the next episode of The Stag Raw. Cheers.